What is up, family? It's Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor and the author of Pre-Med Mondays. Both books are available on Amazon.com, so make sure you grab you a copy and a friend too, okay? You're listening to the Black Men and White Coats podcast, a place where black male clinicians have the opportunity to share their story with the rest of the world. Today's guest is very special. It's one of my buddies, Dr. Jason Robinson. He is a hospitalist, so that means he practices hospital medicine. He takes care of patients inside of the hospital, and he's very good at it, might I add. And he's got a story that is going to make you say, well, I have no excuse. I have no excuse not to be successful, okay? Just think about this. We know one of the biggest predictors of success is how involved your parents are in your upbringing. Imagine growing up without a dad, though. Furthermore, imagine losing your mother at a relatively young age as well, right? That's what Dr. Robinson has gone through. He's going to tell you about it here in this episode, all right? So pay special attention. And when you then listen to this, you're going to feel as though you have no excuse. If he could be successful, you can be successful. Before we get into it, let me remind you guys, Black Men in White Coats Teen Summit is going to be taking place February 16th, 2019 in Dallas, Texas. Visit us on the website at blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash summits. And we definitely need you guys support. We are still fundraising. So if you're able to help us get to our fundraising goals, we can make this summit free to our students. That would be excellent. Okay. And for the podcast, same thing I always ask you guys to do. You got to support us. Okay. Hit that subscribe button. Please hit that subscribe button. Hit that share button and just tell a friend, email to your friends, your pre-med club, to your colleagues, your, your Jack and Jill group, your Urban League group, whatever you are part of, send it to them so they know about this podcast and they can help us along our mission and trying to increase diversity in the field of medicine, specifically with emphasis on black men. All right. I'm going to be quiet now so you guys can hear from Dr. Jason Robinson and hear the story. And the whole time, I want you guys to pay attention to what he's going through. And when he's done with the story, ask yourself, what excuse do I have? Check it out. Hello, my name is uh, Jason Robinson, Dr. Jason Robinson. Um, And this is my story. Um, I am a black African-American male that grew up in upstate New York, where I was born in a small city, Middletown, New York. I lived there until I was 16 years old, and I moved to South Carolina. I moved to South Carolina because my mother, who was a nurse, had developed end-stage renal disease, and she was on dialysis for about four years at this point. We moved to South Carolina because she'd been hospitalized numerous times and actually due to what I know now were electrolyte abnormalities or whatever reason, she had actually technically died several times and she felt that it was best that we move back to South Carolina where she could have more support from her family. She had several sisters and her daughter, my sister, living in Charleston, who she felt could help take care of us if she ever gets hospitalized again. Growing up in New York, I grew up in a single parent home. Like I said, my mother was a nurse. Uh, She worked two to three jobs at any given time. And a lot of my younger years, my older sister uh, took care of me. My father passed away when I was eight years old. Uh, and even prior to that, he wasn't really given an opportunity to spend a lot of time with me because I was his illegitimate son. 
he had his family and we were his illegitimate children. He never really was given an opportunity to provide much financial support or, or even advice to me. Like I said, I was, I was eight when he passed away. When I moved to South Carolina, I spent the last two years in high school uh, making a few friends, uh, but really keeping to myself. I entered college, and after my first year in college, I applied to the Early Assurance Program, which allowed me to enter medical school without taking the MCATs. Uh, anyone that's attempt to go to med school, has gone to medical school, knows that the MCATs were an extremely difficult test, and a lot of times people stopped at that point. So entering my second year of college, I had already been accepted to medical school. I never really told many people that I'd been accepted to medical school, only my very close friends knew. And, uh, one very good friend of mine was extremely proud of me. And so when she found out, she began telling people. And I was treated very badly after that. You would expect people to expect people to cheer for me, but a lot of my white classmates couldn't believe and actually made a point to state to me that they couldn't believe that I was smart enough to achieve something like that. I spent the last three years at my college uh, pretty much being on my own, being by myself. I never really got much more support or help from my classmates because what I've achieved up to that point. So I kind of had to mutter through things on my own, but I still was a pretty much of an academic stud. You know, everything that I did, I, I did well. Uh, it wasn't common for, it wasn't uncommon for people to say he's the smartest black kid on campus or one of the smartest black kids at school. In 1998, I entered medical school and, uh, my first year in medical school, not my first year, but my first test in medical school was gross anatomy. And it was very humbling. I realized that I wasn't that much of an academic stud that, or there's nothing but academic studs around me. Um, it was a great equalizer. Uh, I realized I was not that. I wasn't all that. And then I was going to have to work really, really, really hard, harder than I ever did before. Between my first year, I can't remember if that was before. No, I'm pretty sure that was be between my first and second year of medical school. I did research with a couple of nephrologists. That comes, that's important to the story going forward. Uh, before I entered my second year in medical school, my mother suddenly died. My mother, uh, as I stated before, she had end-stage renal disease and she was on dialysis. Uh, she'd been on dialysis for 15 years at this point. She had a kidney transplant that had failed. Um, 
and she would get admitted to the hospital several times a year. This particular time, she was admitted to the hospital for a line infection. Uh, she was discharged uh, Thursday night. Uh, after getting home, prior to leaving the hospital, she complained of having a headache. Doesn't matter. She, you know, she was leaving the hospital regardless. It didn't matter. But she complained of having a headache. When she got home, she had fallen in her bathroom, which is weird for her. She's, you know, she doesn't fall, you know. Um, she fell down and she complained of having some nausea. And she decided to skip dinner and just go to, go to bed and get some rest so she can get back up and go to dialysis the next day. That night, I remember my grandfather, her father calling to speak to her and myself being the protective son, I rudely made it clear to him, being very dis disrespectful to an elder, that uh, she needed her rest. He could talk to her tomorrow. It always broke my heart later because maybe if I'd listened to him, if I'd been respectful, if I'd went and tried to wake her up, maybe then we would have known something was wrong. The next morning, my developmentally delayed sister went in to wake up my mother and she couldn't wake her up. And she came running to my room, Jason, I can't wake up mommy. Like, what is Jenny talking about now? So I get up and I go to wake her up and I can't wake her up. And she's making a very distinct breathing pattern with her. <gasps> very distinct. I remember running into my room and grabbing my pen light that I bought from the medical school store and shining it in her eyes and just realizing that I don't know what's wrong with her eyes, but they don't look right. We call the ambulance and the ambulance come and uh, the paramedics, I believe they intubated her in her room, but they couldn't get the stretcher to her down that our narrow hallway. So they had to pick her up in her comforter and carry her out of the house. And I remember there's like four guys, like two firemen and a paramedic at her head and me holding on to each corner of the comforter, trying to squeeze down this hallway and the ambu bag came off of her tube and me grabbing it and reconnecting and squeezing it myself. When we got out to the ambulance, they said, don't follow us. We have to go fast. We can't wait for you. But this is, we're going to, to this particular hospital, the hospital where I go to medical school. Later on that afternoon, she was pronounced brain dead. When I arrived at the hospital with my mentally challenged sister and my older sister, uh, we were taken in to the back of the emergency room and a neurosurgeon put a CT scan of my mother's head on the screen. And he said, I know you're a medical student. What do you think about this? And to be honest, I hadn't seen many CT scans at that point. All I know is that it was her head uh, and something white was in the middle of it. And that didn't quite look right because it didn't look like bone. It just didn't look right. 
my mother had suffered an intracerebral hemorrhage, most likely complications of hypertension and warfarin therapy. She was on warfarin because she had her mitral valve replaced because she had rheumatic heart disease. The attending that discharged my mother the day before she died was the nephrologist, one of the nephrologists that I'd worked with that summer. The intern that actually discharged my mother, uh, I was a member of his team as a resident, that he was a resident, uh, and I was a med student, 30 med student, two years later. The neurosurgeon who explained the CT scan to me, I was actually, I actually rotated on his team two or three years later. Several different people I met while I was in medical school on different rotations remembered my mother. Because like I said, she'd been hospitalized a lot and they said that she was just such a sweet woman and she, and she was. My second year of medical school was extremely, extremely rough. I had elected to not take any time off. I, I decided to push forward mostly because I know if I'd stopped, I never would go back. It was just, it was too hard, but I pushed through, um, a lot of destructive behavior. Uh, I missed a lot of days, a lot of lectures. I would be home, uh, a lot of drinking, uh, at that time, I was dating a young lady who was the, my first true love and uh, we got engaged and very quickly I destroyed that relationship with infidelity and disrespect. The next few years in medical school, like I said, were pretty challenging. Um, you know, at this point, you know, I tried to stay in my mother's home. You know, though I love my sisters very much, uh, at times it was hard to, uh, you know, I was, I was very headstrong, you know, and I, I still am that way and it's hard to take direction. And I think at times it was hard for them to understand how difficult medical school was. You know, I, I remember one particular incident where I was living with my sister and uh, I'd been away for several days on a weight rotation and I came home and I really just had enough time to put all my stuff in my room, go to sleep and get up and start my surgery rotation next. I just, I don't remember what rotation, but I had to be I'd be to the hospital like five o'clock in the morning. And so I was on call that day as well. So I didn't come home until the next day. And, and she was upset because my room wasn't clean. It was hard because I was like, look, I, I, I live a different type of life. You know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, I just need some understanding in that standpoint. And, you know, it was hard. So I don't really remember spending much time at their house after that. You know, ironically, I was never, ever homeless. Uh, 
in medical school, but I did homeless things. Uh, like some nights I did sleep in my car. Some night, some days I did go to, uh, the gym at my school and shower, not shower because I just worked out, but shower because I needed to shower. Um, but that's what, you know, that's what you had to do. You know, you, that's what I had to do. I had to figure out a way to get through. So I go on and I finish my rotations. And I remember if you look at the dates, started medical school in 1998. My mother passed away in 1999, 2001, the World Trade Center, uh, terrorist attack. And I remember right after that, I started traveling to interview for internal medicine residencies. And, uh, I remember everybody being really, really nice to me. You know, I go to the airport and I'd have some weird seat in the back of the plane and they would say, Hey, you know, we're going to put you in the exit row. And I get to the exit row and, you know, the flight attendants would be so nice and they would just talk to me. They would sit there and spend time talking to me. Oh, you're a med student. That's great. And you're traveling. That's great. I used to try to give me, you know, uh, free beverages and extra snacks. And, you know, when I say beverages, I'm talking about alcoholic beverages. They were just really, really nice to me. And I'm just like, wow, is this what really America is really about? Man, I realized that. You know, for once, as a black man, I wasn't public enemy number one. Uh, there were several <clears throat> Middle Eastern people that lived in America at that time. And, you know, there was a lot of discrimination and mistreatment there because of the fears that people had. And so for once in my life, I actually have to, there actually has to be great tragedy and fear for me not to be public enemy number one. And I knew that's what that was. I chose to come, I chose to go to residency in Dallas. Um, the program I knew was a hard program in internal medicine, but I knew I would get good training. I knew I would know how to take care of people when I got out. In residency, I, you know, I took care of mostly poor black people, poor Hispanics, poor whites. Uh, and so for the most part, I don't think I was fired because I was black too often. Uh, but I do remember one time uh, I was working, doing a rotation in a specialty hospital, which wasn't really a specialty hospital. It was more a hospital for the rich donors to the institution that I uh, trained at. And uh, I was fired there. Uh, I was fired because I was told the patient thought I was incompetent. And I'm not going to lie. I, you know, there were a lot of times where I was behind the ball, what was going on with the patient. Um, There's a lot of communications between attendings that I wasn't aware of. So I was always going in and I was kind of hearing the end of it. But the resident that was reassigned to the case, let me know that it was obviously this gentleman was racist. I finished residency. Well, before I finished residency, and another incident that happened to me, um, 
you know, I grew up in South Carolina, you know, so dealing with racism and discrimination and prejudice, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's like saying I breathed a lot of oxygen when I was young, you know, you just get used to it. But here I am in a big city where everybody's equal and everybody is loving and supportive and accepting of other ethnicities and cultures and sexual biases, whatever the case may be. I roll, but I go on. I remember sitting in a residence lounge with a couple other residents. One particular resident was of Indian descent. Um, and she was talking about to the other residents, not me, but I was only two feet away from the conversation that she was having some difficulties with her engagement because her, her fiance was Muslim and she was Christian. And she made a comment that marrying a, being an Indian Christian and marrying a Muslim would be almost as bad as marrying a black man. I'm sitting in the room. I'm sitting in the room. Like almost as bad as marrying a black man. Public enemy number one again. I mean, here it is. I'm, I, I was a good resident. I worked hard. I was, I was compassionate, I was smart, and still at the end of the day, you're just a black man. I was well liked by the staff, but you're still just a black man. So I finished residency there, and while I was in medical school, I applied for a scholarship called a National Service Corps Scholar, which basically, if you pay, the federal government pays for, for every year of medical school they pay for, they also, you have to give them back a year in an underserved area. And so I went to Louisiana to pay back my time. I owed two years. Um, and uh, I remember being, I, I remember being extremely loved and being extremely supported in uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana. I will say the city because I was, I, I'm very fond of the time I spent there. And I still, one of my, one of my very good friends to this day, you know, I met from being in Lake Charles. But I came back to Dallas and I signed probably the worst hospitalist contract that you could sign. Um, and I became a hospitalist in the uh, Dallas area. The group that I was working with, I was working 28 days a month. Uh, routinely, I was on call every other night. Uh, probably every other call, I had to get out of my bed and go to a hospital because somebody was critically sick or someone was admitted to the ICU. Um, it was a really, really rough time. Hard time. Uh, I couldn't even sleep in the room with my wife because my beeper just went off. And uh, I decided to, to... And to be honest, I was tolerating it. But one of the hospitals that I worked at, just all the doctors were just horrible. They were just mean. You know, you call for a console and they're like, why do I need to see this patient? Because I asked you to see this patient. You know, most of my patients were uninsured or underinsured. And so they knew they weren't going to get paid. But they were just so mean. And I, I remember this one pulmonary attendant was just like, you know, he would just, like, just argue with me in the chart. He would just, oh, this isn't true. And obviously you shouldn't be doing this. And it's like, you know, I'm like, you know, you shouldn't be documenting this in the chart. This is not appropriate. You know, if you have an issue with me, just come talk to me, you know. Um, I finally said that was enough. I was like, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm working 
every day. I'm, I'm up every other night. I just like, this is ridiculous. I'm out of here. So I put in my notice to my group and they were very disappointed. They tried to do what they could to get me to stay, but I, I knew I just couldn't do the same way. I needed to find another job. I couldn't, I really couldn't tolerate working in this hospital anymore. And, um, one of my resident fellow residents that I finished residency with, she was working at an institution, um, and a position came up there and she recommend me, recommended the section chief at that time to hire me. Um, and so I distinctly remember this sitting at work four or five in the afternoon and getting this phone call from, uh, this, this physician saying, Hey, look, do you want a job to come work here? And I was like, yes. Like, he's like, you don't want to think about it. You want to talk to your wife? I was like, yes, because I need to get out of here. One of the other doctors, one of the other um, consultants was in the room and he's heard, he said, Jason, are you leaving? I said, yeah, man. I said, I can't be here anymore. This is just such, such a toxic place. And he said, man, I'm really sorry to hear that. I, uh, you know, he said, you know, you might've had a rough time here. Um, and I said, yeah, I said, you know, the, the owner of my hospitalist group, you know, I wasn't particularly fond of her. Uh, I worked a lot of hours and wasn't really getting a lot of help from her. Uh, I was taking care of some of these really sick people who didn't have insurance, didn't have primary care doctors. It was just really, really challenging. And, uh, and I said, to be honest with you, man, the, the consultants here are a bunch of jerks. You know, I've been treated very poorly. And at that time, he said, Jason, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm really, really sorry to hear that you're leaving. But he said, you know, I could shine a little light on why working here might have been challenging for you. Um, turns out that a lot of the physicians that worked there didn't care for the owner of my hospice group and felt that she, when I was hired, I replaced a very nice physician that she mistreated. And instead of talking to me and hearing my story, they elected to take their frustrations with the owner of my hospital's group out on me. Felt like I was a spokesman for her, so to speak. Um, and so I, I, you know, I had to give a 30, I had to give a 90 day notice so I continued to work in that hospital for another 90 days or so or whatever it was. And, you know, everybody, once they found out I was leaving, they were just like, everyone started treating me differently. Everybody was treating me so nicely. Everybody was apologizing, apologetic and, you know, wishing that I wasn't going. But, you know, at that point I was done. So I left there and I went to work at a different institution, um, which I work there now. And uh, I would say that I, some of the problems that I had, it never was with patients. It never was with nurses or Text or anything like that. I think the issues that I've always had have always been with other physicians, uh, particularly in my group. Um, my supervisor had a meeting with me once and told me that I was intimidating to the staff, intimidating to the staff. They feel intimidated by you. They feel they can't talk to you about issues. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm not gonna lie. I was hardened. You know, I, you know, went through a tough residency. I went and worked in a city where I was the only adult medicine doctor 
um, at this particular facility for two years. And, you know, I, I worked extremely hard and took care of a lot of patients. Um, and then here I come back to Dallas and I get into a really bad contract and a really bad work situation with a lot of people who didn't treat me, a lot of other physicians who didn't treat me appropriately. And then here I'm coming to another institution and I was never mean, I was never disrespectful, but I was always direct. And if I had an issue, and I always told people until this day, if I have a problem with you, I come to you directly. But I think that people were accustomed, people are accustomed to, to, at least in the professional world, being passive aggressive. They look in your face, they smile in your face, they tell you you're great, and then they go behind your back and complain about you. And because I didn't do that, because I was direct with people, or maybe because I was six foot two, 250 pound black man, I was intimidating to the staff or intimidating. Let me correct that. I was never intimidating to the staff. I was intimidating to my fellow colleagues, my the, the physicians I worked with. Um, if you go to my, my place of work now and you ask them about Dr. Robinson, they will, if you talk to the nurses and the techs and the clerks and the respiratory therapists and the physical therapists and the occupational therapists and the case managers and the social workers, they're all going to tell you that they're all going to tell you that I am by far one of the most approachable physicians they've ever worked with in their lives, that, that I am kind and compassionate to my patients and to my staff. But mysteriously, I'm intimidating, mysteriously, just out of the blue, I'm intimidating to my fellow physicians. I remember an incident where uh, I'm a hospitalist, and so I admit patients out of the emergency room, and lo and behold, at times you have issues with um, disagreements with the ER docs on the way patients are supposed to be managed. This one particular day, I'm working a night shift, and I get in a disagreement on the way with the patient needs to be managed. I was very respectful, but I did question the physician's plan. He got very upset with me. I went downstairs to admit a patient and I went to go look for an EKG and the EKG location was near his work spot. And he walked up behind me such that when I turned around, he was right in my face. Now, like I said, I'm six, two, this guy might've been five, one, five, five, two. I mean, he was a very short guy. And he starts arguing with me and yelling at me and screaming with at me. And he actually pushes me and actually bumps his chest into me, which, you know, he's like hitting my stomach, but you know, and he's getting in my face. He's yelling and screaming and I'm literally standing there. And I know that this man is physically assaulting me and I know I have every right to defend myself. And as I look across the room, because I'm clearly, I can see over this man's head easily. There's two police officers sitting there and they're just staring. Like they're not walking over. They're not trying to break this up. They're literally, this man is yelling and screaming at me and putting hands on me. And they're just sitting there staring. Now, listen, I don't sweat it because, I mean, this guy was probably 120 pounds soaking wet. I could pick, could have picked him up and thrown him through the window if I wanted to without thinking twice about it. But I know as a black man, you can't do that. I know that 
whatever disciplinary action that would be taken against me, it would be far more severe than anything that he would have to deal with. And so I proceeded to try to move around him and he shoved me again and I kind of fell back against the window and I'm like, or, or the desk. All right, guy, this is ridiculous. I get up and I kind of, kind of push my way past him and go about my business. But it was that attitude where I was like, I couldn't, you know, you can't respond the way that you want. You're not a equal citizen. You can't quote unquote stand your ground. Cause those police officers might even try to kill me if I, if I try to fight that man in there that night. You gotta remember this is, this is actually even before Trayvon Martin. So, you know, to this day, I still work in my institution. I enjoy working there because I do enjoy the staff and I love the patient population that I take care of. But I still remember that, you know, even though growing up, the working poor in a single uh, family home, being an illegitimate son and losing my mother at the age of 23 and suffering through my intern year because I knew nothing about taking care of patients, knew nothing about medicine and dealing with the racism and prejudice later on in my career, I still enjoy what I do. You know, at the end of the day, there are a few things that will never change about me. And that being that I am an African-American male and I have my inner strength and I'm strong and I'm smart, but that doesn't mean the people around you are going to recognize that and appreciate that. And at the end of the day, you're still going to just be a black man to most people. But I do try to live my life as the exception for people to realize that, you know what? I am charitable. I am kind. I am smart. I am more than anything else hardworking. And I feel like I am a good representation of a black man in America. And I know this seems like a great challenge. It seems as if you're climbing the largest mountain and you can't see the top. But remember, life is struggle. And struggle builds strength. And strength will give you the ability to accomplish and conquer anything. When I look back at my life, the things that I failed at, I didn't ask for help when I needed it. Ask for help. Don't feel bad about that. You will be surprised at the amount of support that you will receive from the most unusual places. Be proud of your accomplishments. I don't care how small or how big. Be proud of them because you did it. And when you get stuck, because you're going to get stuck, you're going to get you're going to be afraid. You're going to fail. You're going to have doubt. You're going to look at yourself as a loser. Having all those feelings and those thoughts and being in those situations are okay. They're actually great 
because they give you an opportunity to conquer something, whether that, whether you conquer your fear or whether you conquer a failure. But when you come out on the other side, like I said, you'll be stronger. And when you get to those times where you're stuck and you've reached out to everybody you can and you felt like you've done everything to conquer this, sometimes you just have to accept that you have to move past something. But the thing you don't want to do is stand still. Just keep moving. Take one step. That's the way I've lived my life. I like to think to myself that nobody fails more than I do. I fail at being a physician. I fail at being a husband. I fail at being a father. I fail at being a brother. But the thing I don't fail on is trying. I keep taking one step. I keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that, that will take you to places that you can't even imagine. Again, this is Dr. Jason Robinson. This is my story. And thank you for listening. Thank you so very much, Dr. Robinson, for joining us on this episode of Black Men and White Coach. Your story is extremely inspiring and motivating and pushes me to want to be a better me. You know, I asked at the beginning of this episode, you guys, the listeners, to think about what excuses you'll have after hearing this. So I'm asking you again now. You heard the story. What excuse do you have not to be successful? If Dr. Robinson can make it, you can make it. If I can make it, you can make it. We all have greatness inside of us. The line that I liked the most came towards the end. He said the thing that I did not fail on was trying. I failed at many, many things, but the thing that I did not fail on was trying. In order to be successful in life, you have to try. You have to try. So I'm going to leave you guys with that. Remember to try, 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 try. And you have what it takes to make it. All right. So as we wrap up, I do want to remind you, please do subscribe to the podcast. The more subscriptions we get, the higher the ratings and the more people hear the podcast and also share. Just click the little share button. Make sure your friends, your family, your clubs and organizations are aware of the podcast. February 16th, 2018, Black Men and White Coats Summit. You can learn more about it at blackmenandwhitecoats.org backslash summit. We hope to see you guys there. If you were able to donate, please do donate. We have a CrowdRise page and I'll put the link down below. And the reason we're collecting this money is because we really want the students to be able to attend this event free of charge. So please definitely do support and do donate to this event. Uh, if you guys have any questions, pre-meds, you know where to find me. I'm on pre-med star. Just find me on pre-med star. Any questions, I'm there to help you guys be successful. I love you guys. I'll see you next week. Shh.